Hi, everybody. This is Dr. Scott. Welcome back to part two of Internet Facilitated Sex Crimes. Thanks for sticking with us. We are, we were completely unaware of how long the episode was. So this is part two and uh, stick around. There's a lot more information coming your way. Thanks so much and enjoy the show. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for sticking through this very difficult subject with us. (laughs) All right, let's move on. So we're going to talk about who these guys are a little bit more. And I emphasize who, because... See what you did there. (laughs) Scott is going to talk about that in a moment. Um, But so the backgrounds, generally, they do not have a prior criminal history. So these, these guys are really flying under the radar, But when we ask them and or polygraph them, they do actually self-report. 55% of them self-report, yeah, I actually have touched a kid inappropriately in real life. They have contact offenses in their history that they have not been caught for. And then 50%, especially of child sexual abuse image predators, offenders, they do meet the criteria for pedophilic disorder. So, you know, I always get that comment, well, everyone who downloads child pornography must be a pedophile. And actually, no. So it it speaks to what we were talking about before, about half of them meet the criteria, yes. And the other half is like what we were saying, individuals either out of curiosity have downloaded it and looked at it, or it's in, you know, a cache of... um other types of pornography that are legal. So, so yeah, that's, that's sort of the, the breakdown of who these guys are. And we're going to get a little bit more into their cognitive thinking patterns in a moment. But first, Scott has a little case study for you real quick. So one of the examples that we'll talk about, which has now happened so long ago that it's sort of disappeared from the public vernacular but is very fascinating is that of Peter Townshend, who is um, a British musician. He's known for his more than 50-year association with the seminal rock band The Who. That was our little um, snarky <laughs> clue earlier. Um, he's a co-founder and leader, uh, principal songwriter, guitarist. Uh, he was also secondary lead vocal, I believe. And The Who is considered to be one of the most important and influential rock bands of the 20th century. Oh, yeah. Um, he is incredibly prolific. He's written more than 100 songs for studio albums. He's done concept albums, as, as well as doing, I believe he's actually done um, background music for uh, film and television as well. I mean, he's yeah, I think so. composed those. He plays, I don't know, I don't even know how many instruments. I mean, I know he's a keyboardist, but he also plays banjo, accordion, harmonica, ukulele, mandolin, violin, uh, synthesizer, bass guitar, and drums, and he's self-taught. So um, he plays his own, uh, plays all of these instruments on his own solo albums, and he guest records with other artists. So, I mean, we're talking about a, literally a near genius level of musical artistry in this individual. And back in 2003, he was taken into uh, custody in Great Britain, in England, um, where he is a citizen, because of the Protection of Children Act. And 
before the uh, possession of child pornography. And I think he had one image and his excuse was that he was doing this. He was searching the dark web for these images so that he could better understand what had happened to him, that he had been molested as a child and he was researching for his autobiography and he wanted to use his book as a discussion for what he felt like was his suspected abuse. So there's also some controversy about whether or not he actually experienced it or believed it, or it was a supposed quote unquote recovered memory type of thing. Right. But then he reported to the police that he became so enraged by looking at these images that he was going to take it upon himself to expose these criminal enterprises. Um, and that the British banks were accepting credit card payments. Right. This is before you could get stuff for free of that level. I mean, or maybe you could if there was a way to find it. But, you know, the main thing that tipped it off was that, you know, he made a seven pound purchase. You know, I think seven pounds back in 2003 was probably about $12, $13 or something. So he gave his credit card information to this company in order to um, to get these images. And so, folks, don't ever take it upon yourself to start, you know, <laughs> exposing people or starting these investigations on your own. It just doesn't look good. Yeah, it doesn't. And it also doesn't, I mean, there's a fine line between madness and mastery m- many times. And, you know, for someone who is so high level, you've when you find mathematicians or musicians who are at this level of talent, there is a there is a tendency to find in these individuals the ability to go into a zone which completely shuts out the rest of the world. And that can also influence their thinking. Right. Is it possible that he got on this one-man mission crusade? It's certainly possible. It's not very likely given what we know about the nature of these offenses. But it is an interesting, you know, it is an interesting um, argument. So in the end, he was cleared of the worst of the charges um, because he didn't actually download any images. And that would have been, at that time, it would have been a maximum five-year jail sentence in Britain. So he didn't download anything, but he, it really, really did affect his uh, career for a while. Huge scandal. Now, there's also, he's an incredibly wealthy man. And, you know, right. money will make a big difference in any kind of court proceeding. And I would, I will hasten to say this, that whether or not, whatever his intentions were or his motivations, that anybody else who would have been charged with the same thing in the same situation would definitely have not gotten off. um, Yeah, for sure. For sure. And he, so I don't know how they do it in Britain, but he was actually put on the sex offender registry for a while, at least, because he refused to go to court on it. He said that you know, he wasn't going to go to court to face these charges. And so something hinky happened. He gets put on the sex offender registry. And then in, what was it, 2010, the Super Bowl was in Florida, I think. And the Who was playing the halftime show. And I remember around that time that there was an organization that, you know, advocates against the, excuse me, abusive children. And they put out these sex offender advisory flyers around Florida with Pete Townsend's face on it saying, wow, I did not register sex offender. 
he's coming to the United States. He should actually be taken into custody. Um, I have a picture of it that all I, I usually show in my presentations. But it's so funny because when I do this presentation for usually like law enforcement and talking about the psychology of sex offenders, I have like my top top six excuses that people would use. <laughs> so I just want to read those to you real quick. So six is I accidentally downloaded it. Five is it came in a bundle with other legal porn, which for every case that that happens, there's somebody that hears that and goes, oh, I'm going to use that excuse. Too. Yeah. <laughs> Four, it just popped up. Kind of a double entendre there. Uh, three, <laughs> strangers are emailing it to me. I remember hearing this and just being like, wow, that's so weird. Like, how did they get your nope. email address? Yeah, no one's ever accidentally like mailed me drugs. That is so weird. How <laughs> <laughs> um, number two, it turned into an addiction and I just couldn't help myself. And then number one is always I'm doing research for a book <laughs> or I'm doing research into my own victimization. Um, I can understand the pull to really wanting to understand if you were a victim of child sexual abuse, wanting to find answers. And it might even be less scary to sit behind your computer and do some research rather than go see a therapist or, you know, learn about it in other ways. But there's so many other ways of gaining information at our fingertips rather than going straight to something like this. There's just so many other ways to look into this information that is available online. You don't have to go look for child pornography. Right. You can look at research. You can look at books. You can join a, a victim support group. But yeah, this, his excuses are along the lines of the, what you gave. And um, he had supposedly, you know, gone to the site and seen something so horrific and it's you know it was a, a russian site or a eastern european site where an infant was being horrifically horrifically abused and he picked up the phone and was going to call the police and then thought oh maybe i shouldn't and he called his attorney and supposedly his attorney said uh don't do anything oh which is very interesting i mean because that's all hearsay uh, any attorney worth their salt would be um, wipe your computer, destroy your computer, right. cover your tracks, and don't ever do this again. But yeah, so it's it's it was a pretty weak story. Um, yeah. And at one point, I mean, things got really bad for him. He was paying about three thousand a day for security at his homes um, because he was just you know people were really really going after him. And um, it's also interesting, like he got into a lot of flack because he refused to stand in front of the judge. I mean, he didn't he. Right. Like who, who get, oh, who, yeah. who gets to do that? Who gets to say, well, yeah, I'm, I'm for whatever reason, I'm like, you know, F you, or I don't feel comfortable going in front of the judge or I'm ashamed. Nobody gets to do that. This is, no. that's, nobody gets to do that. Nobody's above that. So yeah, you have to. Exactly. Um, so that is a, an interesting case of someone who, I mean, he's in his seventies and now there, it is really ironic and interesting that that topic is in one of their most seminal works which is tommy if, if you've never seen the rock opera rock opera tommy it's an amazing stage show it's also a really amazing movie 
with Oliver Reed and Anne Margaret. I mean, it was done in the um, early 70s. I mean, it's it's mind blowing. No, it's 1969. Uh, yeah, 1969. It's it's really disturbing and amazing. It's about this um, uh, uh, blind, deaf, and mute uh, teenager who is molested. Right. Who has I'll, a history I'll of fix that. that yeah. in, I'll fix that in editing. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's fine. Um, so he had visited this before, but you know. We don't know if there's necessarily a connection between that. So another case that I wanted to bring up, um, which is a lot more close to us, uh, you know, in chronological time, is an utterly charming and very talented young man, uh, Mark Salling, who is a series regular on the series Glee. If you're into musical theater or you're into show choir or just bitchy Ryan Murphy shows, then Glee was a really, really great show. Yeah. And he played this sort of character, this character Puck, who was sort of like lower SES, sort of like from a low class family, who was really sort of becoming a better person. He was a jock, but becoming a a better... jock, but kind of the bad boy... And becoming a better person through, you know, engaging in this show choir. And the reality was that he, uh, Mark Salling, had had a sexual, uh, an assault charge uh, um, on him um, for, uh, from a a former girlfriend. And then in 2015, he was found with about 70,000 images of child porn on his computer. That's a lot. It's a lot. That's a lot. And that's a problem. That's like, like, there's no, there's no talking your way out of that. And Mark Salling um, was not able to uh, endure uh, what the results of that were. And he killed himself, um, which is basically he was prosecuted, right? Right. Before he could be prosecuted. So, you know, that's something that was also a big part of what Dr. Shiloh and I did at this forensic site was we had a program that was called pretrial that was supposed to, you know, prevent people from killing them. So it was just for the details on December 29th, 2015, uh, Mark Salling was arrested here in Los Angeles on suspicion of possessing several hundred thousand, no, several thousand photos and, and videos depicting um, child sexual abuse. And it was after they got a tip off from one of his ex-girlfriends and um, so he got out on a $20,000 bail, which is really low. Um, and But they, uh, the police were able to generate a search warrant and they found 50,000 images of child pornography. And they were downloaded between April and December 2015. And they were on his computer. They were on flash drives. And he was charged with receiving and possessing um, those images. So, you know, his career immediately tanked. He was, he had been, he was moving into working in features and he was immediately removed. And um, then on January 30th, uh, 2018, he was found um, deceased, a suicide by hanging um, near his home in an area of Los Angeles that's sort of up in the valley after he had been um, described, he had, someone had uh, noticed he was missing for about six hours. So... Yeah. Right. And pretty typical of what what was starting to happen when there was this big explosion in these types of cases and the prosecution started coming through 
as you know, we've probably mentioned before, a, a lot of these individuals, so we're talking, we already talked about them having no criminal history, but there's such a variety of backgrounds, meaning people with families, men with good jobs, standing in their community, no criminal history. So this is the first time they're ever facing the criminal justice system, a lot to lose. And overnight, and maybe longstanding for some of them becoming suicidal. Right. So the the federal pretrial services um, division, <clears throat> excuse me, was seeing a lot of suicides or attempted suicides, and so they partnered with essentially the company we were working for to say, what can we do for these folks so we can get them to face the charges and stay alive to go to prison, essentially. Um, and so we would do, it, it was basically anxiety and depression management, and we would put them in a group with each other, and they would talk about going through the process. And so it was it was supporting them and their mental wellness while they were going through the process. It was not sex offender treatment because they had not been convicted yet. So we weren't even going down that route. Um it was it was really that and then prepping them to go to prison, wrapping their mind around what that was going to be like. What and it was gonna what it, what to expect. And what was fascinating was doing a pretrial group with people that were there on federal charges versus state charges, because then you were like, Well shit, I gotta explain to them the difference between club fed and right. and the state prison. And there is a radical difference. I mean, federal prisons are are much easier to tolerate, even if you're going in as a sex offender um, versus yeah. a state prison. I mean, it's a very, just a very, very different um, environment. Remember, we'd have people come in and be like, oh my God, I watched Locked Up this weekend. And we're like, no, don't watch that. That's like state prison. You're freaking yourself out beyond yeah. what you need. <laughs> yeah. But I, I still do a, a bit of that pretrial work in my private practice um, because I just found it so fascinating to to really, you know, work with these individuals where they're at and not even really touch the sex offender stuff um, and just get them ready to go to prison. So, yeah. so moving on to what goes on in the mind, I mean, decide, besides the fact that there is a, 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 a possible paraphilic motivation um, of the possible presence of uh, pedophilia or hebophilia, there's a, a thought process that goes on an overlay, which are, we call uh, cognitive distortions. And so when we talk about cognitive distortions, we kind of have to lay a groundwork for what we call uh, the implicit theories. And so Im implicit theories are what we would say about people's belief, their belief about their understanding of the nature of human attribute. And then not only belief, but then the meaning that people attach to these beliefs. So when we focus on um, sex offenders or child molesters or hebophiles, pedophiles, the research shows that people have implicit theories that really focus on children as sexual beings, um, and that's a really hard nut to crack. I mean, like, we, and Shiloh and I have both been in that situation where you're really having to explain to someone that, no, the, the child standing in front of you wearing the nightgown is not flirting with you. Right. They are not seeing this as a potentially sexual 
um, situation. And someone, but that is a, that's an example of a cognitive distortion, you know, but it, that cognitive distortion, that error in thinking is based on this implicit theory of children being sexual beings. And you'll see that if you go and watch that documentary, Chicken Hawk, because yeah, it's, perfect it's, example. it's not necessarily specific to like one situation like Scott just laid out, which it totally can be, but is their overall view of like, no, children, children can have sexual feelings and engage in sexual behavior and it's not harmful to them. I wish everyone else would wake up and sort of understand this so that's some of the the rhetoric that you would hear yeah that part is jaw dropping did you you know you're really good at explaining dangerous world do you want to touch on dangerous world yeah so dangerous world is another theory of cognitive distortions that is exhibited and i i hope i get this right just off the top of my head because it sort of has two prongs to it and one is okay if I am someone that is sexually attracted to prepubescent children, it's sort of me against this big dangerous world that is wants to shut down the way that I think. And so it is my job to protect that as well as protect these children that I want to engage in these sexual relationships with me. So it's an us against them. And I right. need to show them the way I need to, to sort of groom them. Um, they wouldn't use that terminology, but be loving towards them and show them that this is okay. Like, oh, start- I, I, like I'm a good person. And so I will protect them from the, I'm a good person who wants to engage in these actions. I will protect them from the bad people who want to engage yes. in these actions, which is just mental gymnastics, complete oh, mental gymnastics. my goodness. Yes. And we, it's interesting because we talked about this in the Mary Kay Letourneau case, because We see this with female offenders who feel like, you know, they have to sort of teach their, the teenage boys that they're victimizing about love and sex. And it comes from this nurturing place as well. And so that, that is one of those cognitive distortions that goes on for men and women that we've been able to see. So then there are two more. So right there, those, you know, of the four big ones, there's children and sexual beings, the dangerous world. Then we have another one called uncontrollability. And uncontrollability is sort of this, um, a cognitive distortion, a maladaptive uh, defense mechanism of this is outside my control. Yep. Like I, I don't, I mean, this is, I don't have any autonomy. I don't have any agency to control these thoughts, these feelings, these beliefs, these actions. It's really not my fault because I can't do anything about it. Yeah, it's so I find this one interesting because we see this with sex offenders who also assault adults, like serial rapists. They will also use this excuse. Um, so it's it, it's you know to to say you don't have any control over your behavior, especially when it comes to involving a victim and harming someone else. Again, is just a really twisted way of thinking. And well, and but. For me, the one that probably, I don't know, all of these are disturbing in their own way. For some reason, I get really triggered by this last one. But the last one is the nature of harm mm-hmm. category. And nature of harm is that it, it's no big deal. It doesn't, it's not really hurting them. 
I mean, right. you know, it's just sex and it's just sex with a kid and I'm, you know, I'm being gentle or whatever. They'll get over it. It's not that big of a deal. It's this, this real callous disregard for the safety of the child. Right. Whether it be physical or psychological harm that's happening. Um, so some, some examples of what you, we would hear clients say would be, um, well, the victim put it on the internet, so why is she a victim? I heard this one all the time. This 16-year-old takes naked pictures yeah. of herself and puts it on the internet, and now I'm the bad guy? Like, it's my fault? She clearly has some stuff going on. Or maybe they wouldn't even say that, but I would try to get them to think about, okay, why do you think this girl is putting this on the internet? What is what is happening with her? You know, to build that empathy. Um, I'm not physically harming a child. I mean, I'm just looking at pictures. I'm not the guy with the camera. I'm not the one doing it. Um, oh God, I would hear, well, I'm not looking at the violent stuff. Right. No, actually, the, right. the the pictures I'm looking at, the children are smiling. It's not like they're crying or they don't look like they're being forced to do anything. I mean, that that is so hard to wrap your head around, but it, it gives me as a clinician something to work with. Because then we talk about, well, why do you think they might, do you think there's someone off camera threatening to harm their family if they don't do this? That maybe they're drugged. Maybe, you know, all of this, like, let's do some critical thinking here to see what's going on beyond just what you're seeing in front of you. Um, And then I think you and I have also heard the, like, the excuse of, especially like someone who has come to terms with identifying as being a pedophile. Well, this gives me an outlet so I don't go out and harm a child, like almost like harm reduction. Yeah. And that's, I'm trying to figure out if I know, because I want to, you know, you spent a decade working specifically in this area and um, I had not researched this particular point. So I'm going to throw it back at you because you probably know what is is the jury still out or is there definitive um yeah this is a tough one because i think it it might give us a visceral reaction at first but if you sit and think about it there's this there's there's always this these battling theories of okay let's let's say someone comes to us and says this does it pacify the urge or could it be building up the urge to where they're like, this just isn't going to do it for me anymore? Right. I are they reaching? Are they reaching saturation? And then they've got they're going to escalate their behaviors. Right. Which right. you know, I mean, we do have proof of that when it comes to, you know, when we saw the progression, we worked with several individuals at uh, the site that you could look on a chronological history and see that they started out with fairly normal exposure to porn and then there they were going to barely legal which was a a somewhat legal site and then from barely legal into corners of the dark web into violence into you know infant images so we saw a progression that we can really go okay well this is an example of someone who reached saturation and was constantly trying like a heroin addict you know, trying to chase the dragon's tail, get something more and more stimulating. And that's where the most um, research goes into because that's the ultimate question, right? Is this creating, is, is, is pornography and or illegal pornography going to create hands-on contact offenders? 
Right. That's what everybody's scared of, right? So there's still research, tons of research going on in the area. Um, I think that also comes up, and I don't want to open up like some other deep, dark rabbit hole here, but with the um, child sex dolls, you know, they get produced in Asia. Uh, yeah. People say this is keeping me from going out. It's actually, it's, it's satisfying my sexual urge because this is my sexual attraction. And then I have less urges to actually go out and fight, create a victim. So yeah, it's some uncomfortable stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, stepping on to the next uh section is just giving a little more information. We've been using the term cognitive distortions or thought errors. Even though you can't say the word. Cognitive distortions, thought errors. Uh, they're just, you know, for a, just a, a real basic explanation, they are ways that our mind can convince us that something is true that actually is not true. And um, interestingly, the inaccurate thoughts are usually used to enforce or instigate negative thinking or negative emotions. Um, it's sort of that inner um, voice that can be benignly malicious to uh, malevolent in how you think about yourself and think about the world around you. And interestingly, if you if you um, Google, you know, the 15 top cognitive distortions, there are really great things that come up. And for people that are into self-help, you're like going, oh, yeah, when I get stressed out, I fall into black and white thinking or, oh, yeah, I generalize or, oh, I personalize. But what you don't see is a lot of so these and those articles are all about helping you break those um, cognitive distortions that affect you. And what Shiloh and I are talking about in this instance is the opposite, is that these cognitive distortions allow these offenders to justify their actions and their right. behaviors. Exactly. So in filtering, filtering is a very common uh, cognitive distortion where you filter out, let's just say, you know, for the person who is trying to improve themselves and they're like, I'm tired of having negative thoughts about myself. Um, because all I do is I filter out all the good stuff and I just ruminate on on the the bad stuff about myself. I ruminate on the way I look. I ruminate on the way ruminate on the way that I interacted with my boss yesterday. But in filtering for someone who is a sex offender, it's that they would do the opposite. They would filter out all the possibility of harm that they're doing. Yes. And so then that leads into sort of those four points that we said earlier is that, well, no, I'm, I'm not doing any harm to this child. It doesn't really harm them. But I, in engaging in this behavior, I'm protecting them from something worse. So um, jumping to conclusions, emotional reasoning. Emotional reasoning is one is I feel that way, so it must be true. Mm -hmm. We saw this in our group therapy sessions with these guys. We're like, no, this, this is the way I feel. And the Greeks and the Romans were doing it thousands of years ago. And it's like, you know, and then you have to break down like a whole history and anthropological cultural discussion about no that's that was a different culture right and it was absolutely not what you're talking about right now. and these these cognitive distortions for most people aren't just coming out of nowhere when when they are offenders on the internet they're also talking to each other and and um, creating communities online especially those that are more pedophilic and 
like with the organization NAMBLA. I mean, they've created a community where they have uh, literature and conventions because they're the North American Man Boy Love Association, and they feel like that that should be okay and be legal. And so it's now an echo chamber of building up these cognitive distortions that are getting reinforced online and or if they're part of these organizations, which you'll you would see if you um, watch again Chicken Hawk because it follows a few NAMBLA members. So yeah, I mean there's and using that example, there's one that's particularly jaw dropping and I can't remember his name. I just remember that the horrible like sweater. Cosby <laughs> sweater he wore, which how, how ironic is that all these years later? It's like, oh right? another sex offenders wear eighties, early nineties sweaters, you know? Um, but one of the cognitive distortions of, is we would talk about it would be negatively biased recall of social encounters. So when you, when an individual ruminates of like, oh man, I tried to talk to that girl and I just made a complete ass of myself and oh, I was talking and like, I just wouldn't shut up. And I was talking about this dumb thing. And now she thinks this blah, 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 blah. So let's flip it where, that the sex offender in certain situations incorrectly, positively biases his recall of that social encounter. And if you watch the documentary Chicken Hawk, you will see several examples of this. There's an example where this uh, this guy who he is a he is a proud member of NAMBLA, and he is, you know, just the cognitive distortion. I mean, he's even having what we call euphoric recall, talking about some of the incidents. But they show him interacting with these three teenage boys in a rural area, I think of Virginia somewhere. And he has this interaction, and then he turns to the camera, and he said, did you see how they were flirting with me? Did you see yep. how that boy pulled up his shirt? He was flirting. And clearly, the the kid was not flirting with him at all. The kid didn't even recognize him except as some weird old man there was clearly no flirting going on. I mean, he, the boy's almost trying to get away, but he keeps engaging him in conversation. And you're right. Afterwards, he is just giddy and recounting to the cameraman about how he was, you know, opening up himself to entertain the idea of being with him. Oh, it's just, it is so interesting. We should do like a get vocal and watch it and then discuss it with oh, our people that, live. That would be interesting. A, a watch party. Eef. Right. Ooh. So there's, I, I encourage you, we, we're going to have a lot of uh, re references in the show notes about cognitive distortions, but those are the, the main ones. I mean, just really the idea is that it is an error in thinking and the error only serves to reinforce beliefs about the activities that they are engaging in. I mean, Shiloh and I, and we've mentioned this before, we have worked with some individuals who have insight into what's going on. They have these drives and these desires. They are aware that they have these drives and desires. They are aware that they are wrong and they are desperate to do something about them. But those are like probably less than a third of the, yeah. the ones that we had the opportunity to work with. Exactly. And who knows if the only, I mean, the only reason they may have gotten there is because, you know, they're in lifetime monitoring, they're in lifetime treatment. So they're trying to get on top of it. Let's talk about the role of fantasy. <laughs> so 
fantasizing clearly plays a role uh, in this particular uh, discussion. And fantasy, look, one of the things that uh, the studies that have been done in this area shows that fantasy in people who are not sex offenders has a completely different level of experience and engagement uh, in regards to sexual arousal than it does for those that are offenders. And so the problem with is in the domain of offenders and those that are, whether it's contact or non-contact, is that fantasy is a blueprint for offending. And fantasy becomes a rehearsal for the offending. And fantasy then becomes the means to uh, achieving sexual arousal. And it enhances, I mean, that's where we, we actually do have some, some data showing that fantasy ha- can have a direct line to causal offending. Does that make sense? Yeah, it, it totally makes sense. And, you know, this is a, a really interesting piece of research that could just be really, you could dive into it on its own. Um, but I think when I relate it to online sex offenders, I think of how it completely perpetuates isolation for these individuals. Yes. Like you said at the top, like they're creating this own bubble where they feel like it's not reality. Um, there are going to be no consequences and they can just do their thing in it. Um, and that's where the the false sense of anonymity come in and things like that. Um, I also see it as being a form as escapism, a really terrible coping skill for a lot of the negative emotions that we know are dynamic risk factors with these guys. You know, if they already have low self-esteem or already aren't, you know, socially apt where they can go out and engage in relationships with women, this becomes their coping skill to just hide out, engage in something that makes them feel good for a few minutes. Um, and then that just gets reinforced. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating, fascinating line of inquiry. And like we said, I mean, we try, I think we did pretty good staying on track today about this. Yeah, about these, <laughs> right? Generally there's we so can go ways. off. Yeah, there's so many places it can go. So our colleague, we've, we talked about this, uh, I believe in our first season, um, our colleague, Jen Haley, who is a really accomplished writer, producer. She wrote on the first season of Mindhunter. And prior to getting into television writing, and she is currently still a playwright, Jen wrote an award-winning play called The Nether. And it's all about what we've been talking about today, which is the role of fantasy and the idea of if there's, if there was an outlet such as like the argument is made for these images, would it therefore reduce the possibility of contact offenses? Right, like a virtual it, reality world. Right, which is what the play is about. So this, right. this play is basically sort of, I, I really felt like it was a, black, a precursor to Black Mirror. It's very Black yes. Mirror. And um, as a stage play, it's really fascinating because you're, you're, talk, you're looking at investigators who are, investigating this virtual world on the deep, deep, deep dark web where, you know, you 
you know, have an implant or you have a headset that takes you in where you can abuse children. Now, the twist here is that the individuals inhabiting the avatars of the children may not be real. They may be AI or they may be other adults pretending to be children because that is their paraphilia. Right. So is there really a crime happening here? And is this engaging in this activity, keeping them from doing it in the real world? And I think that's a, that's a really big question. Yes. You can get, you can get um, the play on Amazon. It's a really quick read. I would total it. Our audience would love it. (laughs) Yeah. And there's actually, if you, if you, um, if you Google or go to YouTube and put in the nether N E T H E R and Jen Haley, uh, you'll get a couple of previews and um, of uh, of the play when Merritt Weaver, Merritt Weaver from many shows, including Walking Dead and Studio 60 and a couple of recent movies. She's really great as the investigator. I So I have, I came across this study from 2009 where they looked at child pornography offenders and did some comparing and contrasting with offenders who act out in real life. And I thought this was so interesting that played into this piece really well was that child pornography offenders significantly identified with fictional characters right. more than contact offenders did. And they scored really high on scales like fantasy and under assertiveness. So I think it helps us sort of paint a picture of, of who this person is or who they can become as opposed to um, the sex offenders that are out there sort of walking in the world with us and and coming in contact with their victims. Which certainly was my experience in several of the people because, you know, when you're, when you're an intern in a setting like uh, Shiloh and I were, you would have a set of people that you saw individually for one-to-one sessions. And then you might also see that same person or that person and others that you saw one-on-one in a group setting, in a group therapy setting. And there was definitely, you really saw a difference in the personality types. I mean, those sort of, the ones that had no contact offenses, but thousands of images were these people that were under assertive and lived, excuse me, and lived in these complete bubbles, you know, like, like almost your sort of mom's basement. (laughs) That's exactly what I was going to say. I mean, like these guys that just living these isolated lives in mom's basement. And here's a gross example. I'm sorry. Oh, I know where you're going. Yeah, but it's not uncommon. This is so I'm not, I'm not identifying anybody on this because it's very common. And it's actually made fun of in a South Park episode, where (laughs) these people become so addicted to being in the zone, in the flow of their uh, virtual interactions in, in the computer world, that they start relieving themselves around their desk. So there would be investigators would come in and they'd say, yeah, we saw like 50 bottles of urine within, you know, because the person would relieve themselves because they didn't want to leave the computer, but then also never empty it. Like they just come back in yep. and, and just crazy, crazy. And maybe not just urine, other... Uh... Other liquids as well. They would, uh, the probation officers I worked with called them elimination jars. <laughs> Which also is very interesting because then does that, I mean, you know, as gross as it is, is that also part of the collection thing? Ooh. You know, like I this, this know. is part of me 
and you can't differentiate between what needs to be thrown away, what needs to be kept, which then ties into the idea of hoarding. I mean, I'm, I don't want to do that research, but it'd be a certainly be an interesting. No. <laughs> I don't any, want to research any that. Any dissertation at all. students out there need a a topic? There you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so um, I wanted to come back to this concept of the pathways of how people yes. come to child pornography, and so the way that it sort of stands right now, and I, you know, this is still so new in a sense. I feel like with a lot of um, subsections of of sex offenders, we ca always caution about how little research is out there. Like with females, with juveniles, online definitely falls into that category. Um, but where it stands is that you have there's three different pathways. There are your pedophiles, and this is like I remember one client clear as day saying, "I was 70 years old when I bought my first laptop." And it was to find child pornography. Like it was oh, wow. A to B. Like that was it, <laughs> you know, like that direct of a pathway. Um, so we do have that subsection there. But then there's also what we've been talking about is this discovery slash curiosity group that either like Scott so, you know, well talked about sort of the desensitization and how you're looking at deeper and darker stuff um, or you see maybe a thumbnail of something that piques curiosity and so you click on it and then it leads to something else at any of those times of course somebody can stop their behavior and say okay I need to slow down what am I doing here what am I clicking on and some people just don't have that urge control but that is that is absolute i've i've heard the story so much and in detail with that person's own experience that i do rule some of that out as just being an excuse now do i hear people say that in group and then someone else clings onto it and goes oh i'm going to start using that as my excuse yeah of course but there's ways psychologically and with um testing that we can sort of weed through this as well and then you know, we have, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to give this example. I remember working with a, with a deputy one time and we were having this discussion. We were outside and this deputy, she was a really heavy smoker and which is very rare these days. Like a lot of like law enforcement does not smoke nearly as much as it used to because they can't really smoke on the job. They're not supposed to, right. you know, they might do dip or do um, packets or something or patches or, or jewel or something, but here's somebody that's just smoking and she's kind of rattling off. You know, she's, she's grossed out by the subject, which of course, most people that aren't exposed to this, this world, you know, and can't look at it clinically, you know, we, we, you and I have developed the ability to sort of distance ourselves from it. And this is somebody who wasn't able to do that. And she's just going on and she's just puffing, puffing away. And then she lights up another one. Like, I don't get it. And I said, well, it, what, can just, could you, what about your smoking? What about it? I said, well, you know, you've lit up back to back three cigarettes while we've been having this discussion. And I said, I'm not offended by it. It's your choice. But you, you know, that is an addiction, right? You, you can't stop it. Oh, well, I, I mean, I could stop. I'm not hurting anybody. I'm like, well, you're hurting yourself. You have two you're hurting kids. hurting me because I'm talking to you. <laughs> right. You know, you, you've got kids. You could be putting your life at risk. And there's all these other things that could happen. And, and yet those are not deterrents for you to stop this behavior. 
And she couldn't get it. She could not get the wow. parallel between sort of the disinhibition connected to the addictive behavior and the drive, the, the biology underneath that that drives it. Right, right. Yeah, that inability to control that urge. In the right moment, even for her, there's this clear-cut physical consequence. Um, but yeah, I, I remember having, I, I worked with an offender and this is kind of goes back to cognitive distortion. And it was so crazy because he said, he remembers opening up the newspaper one day and there was this big story of all of these people pretty locally who had been rounded up in this big investigation. And they had their pictures in there and they were teachers and law enforcement officers and judges and, you know, just everyone who had a high profile or career, which we would be, have a very adverse reaction to them being arrested for child pornography, they made examples out of them. And he said, I thought that's who they're going to catch. They're never going to catch me. Because Ooh, that's a cognitive distortion. Totally. And I'm like, you literally opened up a local newspaper and saw there was investigations going on. And that made you think the opposite because to some of us, if we were doing something even near that, we'd be like, oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> this is like, yeah, too close to home. I better pump the brakes. But his mental gymnastics was, oh, they want the high profile people. They're not going to waste their time on me. And he, and he had done tons and tons of treatment. He knew that, um, you know, that was a distortion of his. But that's interesting. But you're, you know, that's also um, bringing in another element to the distortion. There's the bias, the bias of like, well, I'm smarter. Yes. Or I'm, le I mean, I'm not doing, I'm not collecting 70,000 images. I've only got 99 images and I, I wipe my drive every other day. It's, right. Yeah. Total yeah, cognitive exactly. distortion. So the last um, pathway to child pornography is also what we have alluded to is this compulsive collecting. Um, do you remember any specific examples of of this or anyone that stood out to you? That well, just what you were giving the example of is like I remember one of the guys that that I was on my caseload that I really you know felt I had a lot of positive countertransference towards him because I really saw him as sort of a sad sack and somebody that was a victim. And then, you know, I, he went into euphoric recall about, you know, the Angela series. And like, I never got to see the last four of the Angela series and there were 12 in it. And it's like, oh, wow. that You know, we've been working for six months and you're still yeah, in this place. Yeah, I, uh, what comes to mind for me is... I, I had a couple of clients to where it really felt like sort of the precursor to collecting was this sort of mentality of I like a good challenge and I like to see, I had one guy that was just like, I wanted to see what I could get my hands on that was on the internet that wasn't supposed to be out there. And he was kind of like a buck the system biker guy that was really smart <laughs> Um, but he just was kind of computer savvy. And I remember he said, I found these, the psychiatrist, all of his records were on the internet somewhere. And I was able wow. to get my hands on that. So for him, there was this challenge to it of, you know, if someone, if he would see on a message board where someone would say, 
oh my God, doesn't it suck that like no one can find this image or this series anymore? It was such a like, cool, there's my next challenge. I'm going to see if I can hunt it down. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there's other, several other like psychological factors that, you know, kind of came, you know, where I came up with this formulation of like, that is what stimulated him. Um, now there also may be um, other elements there, but like he would also pass polygraphs about never masturbating to it. So, you know, for me to be able to look at, yeah. put all these puzzle pieces together and go, what is going on here? Because at the end of the day, I want to know why they're sitting in front of me. What do I need to focus on? Do I need to focus on, okay, this is a pedophile whose sexual interest will never change. And here's how we keep him from offending right, or reoffending in the same crime. Or is this someone that needs better decision-making skills, needs to work on their impulsivity, that needs to get these, this need for risky behavior met in other legal ways? Um, and, and hence the reason I loved this work, because it was like its own mini investigation for us to say what's going on here. And even when it comes to the worst of the worst, I don't agree with treating every sex offender, painting them all with the same brush. Well, that's certainly, I mean, even if you're not coming from a place of compassion, um, we should be looking at it as a societal and cultural thing because putting everybody in that same, in that, you know, that, that same group is not fair to anybody and it causes more problems down the line. Right. Absolutely. Um, so I think we should wrap it up here. I actually think we could go into a lot of information on internet solicitation, but maybe we'll save that for another episode or we can do some sort of bonus episode with that. Um, but this is a ton of information and I know it's yeah. not easy to listen to either. So I don't want to just drown out even more, but let us know if that's something you guys are interested in hearing and we can definitely put that together for you. And please join us for our get vocal uh, discussion on this, uh, you know, I'm sure, you know, log in, jump online, give us some questions. Um, and we'll, you know, we'd love to discuss this with you guys. Yes. After this episode, you will hear a new little promo about get vocal. So listen to that and I'll give you all of the details, but it's so all good right. to be back. It's good to be back folks. I hope everyone is doing well and staying safe. We are not out of COVID yet. We may not be out of COVID for months. Um, you know, we are addressing issues of social justice that have long been unaddressed in this country uh, within many existing systems, including law enforcement. Dr. Shiloh and I are keenly aware of that. Be safe, be aware, take care of each other. And we, we believe in you, our listeners. We know who our listeners are, and we are heartened by that. We're all in this together. And um, we know it's hard right now. We know it's every, very hard. everyone has their own personal journey they're going through. And we do have a lot of these more open, casual conversations on Get Vocal um, as they come up more in real time. So please join us there for that. It's so good to be back. We will start up our the rest of our year. We don't even call it seasons anymore, but we're going to be on our more regular show schedule and our um, casual discussions on Get Vocal. Look for us on social media. We've got some amazing merchandise coming up. Amazing merchandise. And um, we will see you next time on LA. Not so. Confidential. Bye. Bye folks. Thank you.